Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Tom Lin. He is the author of The Thousand Crimes of Ming Su, which is published by our friends at Little Brown and Company. Tom, welcome to the program. Hey, Jason. Um, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here. And Tom, my first question, according to your author bio in our conversation before we started recording here, you are still in college, a PhD student, but a college student. Uh, nonetheless, uh, you are 24 years old. I recognize the absurdity of asking this question because you don't know any different, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What is it like publishing your first novel with a major publisher while you were still in graduate school? Um, it's, it's pretty well. And I actually, I did turn 25 this, this, uh, this past February. So I'm now, um, in the, uh, you know, <clears throat> in the, in the square numbers of age territory. Um, I think after, uh, what is it? After 23, I've, I've begun to count prime number ages instead as, as kind of new landmarks. Cause I think those, those also get kind of spaced out in a very nice way. Um, it's, it's pretty wild. I, I finished the book, uh, the manuscript of it before I actually arrived at, uh, and sorry, grad school. Um, cause I kind of had this gut feeling that I would be unable to finish it. If I, if I didn't finish it before grad school, um, mm. there was a chance that I might never finish it. Um, mm. so now I'm in the interesting position of, of having to actually do both kind of for the first time, um, where I have to do grad school and also, um, be working on my second, whatever second project I have, um, uh, who knows. Uh, but it, it's it's weird um, to kind of to be switching between those because I'm doing a um, working toward a PhD in in literature. So it's interesting to be switching between the critical and and the creative modes um, of my brain. And sometimes I get crossed over. Yeah, what's your focus for your PhD? I'm actually uh, my specialty is um, science fiction and uh, science and technology studies. Um, so my research is involved in questions of complex systems and agency and whether or not, you know, any one person or group of people can be responsible for something, for instance, like Facebook or a fighter jet. Mm -hmm. Nice. That sounds fantastic here at North Carolina State University in Raleigh. The faculty in the MFA program are very specialized in science fiction with uh, John Kessel and Cadwell Turnbull and some others. Um, well, great. Good luck with that, Tom. I know that a PhD is a gigantic undertaking. Um, none, not, nonetheless, while you are promoting your first novel and working on your second, the novel that you just wrote, that, that you just published, The Thousand Crimes of Ming Su, it is a literary novel. It is a Western novel. What authors and novels did you draw inspiration from as you were working on this or before you wrote it? Yeah, I, um, I really like John Steinbeck because I think he nails that kind of sense of place. He's really good at getting... Uh, this kind of narrative and experiential, visceral uh, description of a place. And for, for Steinbeck goes California and for, um, for Ming Su, it ends up being kind of the high desert of Nevada and, and uh, Utah. But I think um, I also drew from, you know, Borges, uh, who, who I think has just the most mind bending uh, short stories and they're very, they're very dense and compact. I love the way that they're kind of structured. Um, I like Saramago um, for his kind of really lyrical, endless uh, sentences. And I also, I also actually um, ended up drawing inspiration from from some artists and, uh, and not not simply writers. Um, so James Terrell, who actually is also a Kimono alum, so a little bit of stage and pride there. Um, 
and his he has these installations that he calls sky spaces, which are um, they they enclose a kind of aperture or a portal of uh, you know. So there's there there'll be like this ring or this kind of roof, and you can see just a section of the sky through it. Um, and we actually he actually installed one at Pomona, and so I used to go there a lot and sit and kind of plan out um, you know what I was what I was going to do or, or um, the actual first time that I had the idea for Mingzu and the kind of the earliest form was actually at the sky space. So there's kind of this kind of genealogical tradition of, of artists, um, but also other land artists as well. So um, I think Robert Smithson uh, and his spiral jetty, which is uh, just north of Salt Lake city um, and uh, Michael Heisen as well, double negative. Excellent. Thank you so much, Tom. I'm a huge fan of works of uh, literature that are inspired by art, including this novel. Um, Tom, our protagonist, Ming Su, is a killer. As the opening sentence reads, for a long time, it did not trouble him to kill. Uh, can you talk to us about this outlaw Western persona uh, that kills and is not troubled by killing? What is it about this genre and this time period that encourages lawless characters like Ming Su, the man out of bounds. Yeah, I mean, I think the Western is, if you actually look at the historical kind of run of what we would consider to be, you know, classical Western setting, it's only about 20 or 30 years. Um, it, you know, that's, that's the amount of time that we have kind of between when the railroads are getting finished up and when uh, mass industrialization begins to really kind of dominate um, both coasts. And so we, when the Western first starts popping up at the turn of the century, I think, I think the earliest attested one that, that is clearly identifiable is, comes up in 1912 or so, it might even be 1902. Um, and so, you know, that's, that would be like if we're writing a book kind of about the 1990s from here. And so the mm -hmm. fact that we're still writing about uh, that Western timeframe now, almost, you know, 100, 150 years on, kind of speaks to the way that the genre has become a stand-in for a lot more than just that landscape. I think it speaks to a kind of very um, imperialist understanding of where what we are owed from the land um, as Americans and and what um, what doesn't belong there. And so I think the Western has always been this kind of site of um, American imagination, specifically a kind of a white male American imagination of a history that is um, proper and, and just. And so kind of going back into that and exploring, you know, um, the things that outline the genre, especially that of violence, because um, a lot of a lot of the violence that you find in Westerns is, is this kind of sense of being beyond the law, um, that that you're in this kind of frontier zone where, you know, it's every man for himself and and the actions that you do, you, you know, you're only you can't you answer only to yourself and to God. Um, and I think that kind of disregard to violence or, or um, not being troubled by killing, I think is, is a learned, is a learned kind of response to, to a specific set of paradigms that are at work in that landscape and kind of in that frontier mindset. So I think to kind of start off the book by introducing this character who is, who is so baked into that mindset, um, who, who can execute, you know, who can dole out and receive the violence that kind of is circulating in, in that frontier space, in that borderlands, um, I think is, it's always been very interesting to me to kind of sub in almost, you know, um, Ming Su to where this, uh, to where old protagonists would have been white male and total utterly dominant to kind of sub in Ming Su and have, and have him respond instead to this, this, um, whatever kind of paradigms are operating there. 
and see how he how he moves through that landscape. Absolutely. And speaking of moving through a landscape, a quote from the first chapter that I highlighted uh, is as follows. A body must pass through this world traceless, end quote. And I want to ask you about this philosophy of Ming Su's and how it may counter your personal philosophy as an author who, by the act of publishing a book, cannot subscribe to this philosophy. Yeah, I think um, that is also, it, it, you know, it has some relation to, <clears throat> sorry, it has some relation to, you know, bear no trace and kind of backpacking. Um, but the, I think what I was just trying to get at is this, is this sense of um, human time versus geological time or kind of, you know, different, different scales of, of experience um, that he, he, and that quote comes after he, he digs a hole um, to get some water from, from a seep a little bit below, below uh, ground level. And he closes the, the hole back up. And so part of that is, you know, he's, he's got assassin training. He knows that he, he's got to be stealthy, you know, stealthy and sneaky. But the other part of it is a kind of acknowledgement that um, the work that we do as human beings, like that is what defines our life. And a, a lot of ways of thinking about the future, especially futures after our own deaths, is, is thinking about what we leave behind or what remains. Um, and so for Ming to be operating on this, on this kind of level of, of not leaving any trace of, of deliberately um, excising himself from any record of his activity, I think it, it reproduces a kind of anxiety about um, not like leaving too many traces or perhaps being, being found or having those traces destroyed. And instead he, he kind of proceeds on this, um, this framework of, of operating without leaving marks um, of, of, you know, doing activity and doing labor and work um, and, and trying not to modify uh, that, that he, the, the stuff that he encounters. And I think that stands also as a corollary to um, another thing that, that was really, that really stood out to me about the book is um, these Chinese laborers, all of whose names um, we've forgotten or erased throughout history, they built this railroad, you know, um, from well, in the case of Chinese laborers, it was from Sacramento to a little bit uh, outside Salt Lake City Promontory. Um, and even though we don't have their names anymore and we've lost most of their stories, what we do have is this trace of their labor. We have an almost perfect route from Promontory to Sacramento. And in fact, if I want to go to Reno today from, from Davis, I'm going to take a, the 80 up through the mountains, up to the Sierras, and I'm never going to be more than a mile or two distant from that original track. The, and so the stuff that they've done has left a trace. People leave traces. And so for Ming to deliberately avoid that or, or kind of you know think that he ought not to leave a trace, I think speaks to his understanding of where he is, where he fits into this world and whether or not he, he's allowed to modify it. Right, thank you, Tom. And I have uh, been on the California Zephyr train from San Francisco to Reno, um, written on those railroads. Speaking of the railroads, um, I'm hoping that uh, you can elaborate a little um, on the workers that the different railroads hired, because the differing railroads had different philosophies, I believe, about um, the crew they hired to lay the tracks. Yeah, so there's actually, I wish I had my sources with me. Um, so they, uh, the Transcontinental Railroad um, had at its eastern end Omaha and at its uh, western end Sacramento. 
And the, um, the eastern half of it was built by the Union Pacific working west, and the western half was built by the Central Pacific working east. And um, they were competing. They, were, you know, they, they wanted to do more tracks because they had a contract with the government that paid them for every mile. And in fact, not only paid them, but gave them alternating patches of land on each side of the tracks. So as, me- as many miles as they could lay would, um, would, had a direct correlation to how profitable they were. And so both of these companies are kind of um, dashing towards each other at, you know, at, at madcap speeds, and they begin to need laborers, huge amounts of laborers. Um, and the Union Pacific begins drawing from um, anyone they can find. And so the Civil War is, is just, just finishing, and so they pull over a lot of veterans, um, and they also pull over a lot of people who are just interested in, in going west from the East Coast. Whereas on the Western side, um, they actually run into a labor shortage quite quickly. Um, and kind of begrudgingly, uh, they, they decide to use Chinese workers. Um, and they quickly find that because they can pay them less, work them harder, and, um, and kind of like lock them into work, uh, that they, the Chinese workers end up being uh, an incredible economic proposition for the Central Pacific because they can hire them by the thousand um, and pay them less than their uh, white counterparts. Um, mm. And there's they begin sending letters. You can actually look at all these archival documents where, you know, um, one of the Crocker is, is writing a letter to someone who's saying, you know, I would like a hundred thousand more Chinese, uh, by next year, totally insane numbers. Um, and they would come off the steamships in San Francisco and, and, you know, kind of go straight up to the rails. Uh, and they were managed by white gang bosses. Um, but otherwise, um, they, they were worked kind of constantly, especially up, uh, near the tunnels, um, Donner tunnels. Uh, th- there's one that you can you can stand in, and you can see still on the walls. You can see the marks of the hand drills that the crews use to blast the tunnels. And um, you know, I went in there with, with <clears throat> I went in there with a headlamp. Um, they didn't have that. So hmm. imagine being you know imagine being in the middle of winter up on that mountain. It's yeah, you know, uh, twenty below. You've got uh, you've got a rod of iron, maybe four feet long, that weighs like twenty pounds. And you have two team members behind you with sledgehammers that are just hitting that tiny dime-sized target at the end of this drill, and you're gonna, you just hope that they don't miss and you know take your hand off. And it's dim because you're in the middle of a mountain. And uh, when that's done, you have to load it with dynamite and and run, and you do that for 14 hours a day, for months. Um, so these you know these these workers were uh, they did kind of superhuman labor. Um, and certainly as, as well on, on the Union Pacific. I, mean, I, I focus more on the Central Pacific for, for research purposes, but the Union Pacific, uh, as they went, they would establish these new towns, post offices or kind of depots. Um, and these towns became known as, um, uh, well, the whole railroad became known as Hell on Wheels. And they would, mm-hmm. they would generate these Hell on Wheels towns um, that were just full of the people who were coming to that frontier. So all these veterans and, and gamblers and, and all the, the kind of the attendant vices now that they were beyond the reach of, of normal law. And so these towns became famous for, um, you know, like having a murder every night or, or absolutely wild behavior. Um, and Corinne in Utah was widely considered to be the last Hell on Wheels town because right after that, they, they closed up and met at Promontory. Um, but the Union Pacific stories is just as interesting. Uh, but if, if you look at these books that talk about the building of the railroad, um, you might find, as I did, that a lot of them are interested in only kind of the business aspects of it. It's a lot of biographies of maybe a dozen men with 
uh, a lot of money and and kind of political power who are writing letters and angry telegrams to each other and trying to coordinate uh, building this railroad. And so there's not a lot, um, uh, there's not as much stuff rather on the experience of the workers themselves, which is what I was most interested in at least. But there's a really good book that's out now about the um, Chinese workers on the Central Pacific by Gordon Chang, which is called Ghosts of Gold Mountain. And that one's great. Excellent. We will talk more um, about these uh, kind of white gangster um, bosses and the railroad workers after the break. But for now, we are going to take a break for a word from our sponsor. And then I will be right back with Tom Lin. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Tom Lin, author of the fantastic new novel, The Thousand Crimes of Ming Su, which is published by our friends at Little Brown and Company. Tom, in a scene early in this novel, there's a character, James Ellis, who approaches a group of railroad workers. And we have spoken about the Chinese railroad workers during this time and how maybe their names aren't preserved by history. But in the moment of this novel, uh, James Ellis describes the workers as, quote, the faceless Chinese, end quote. Why faceless? Well, it's it's interesting. Um, They were... The the Chinese were organized into uh, small gangs of, of workers, depending on kind of what task they had to do while they were building it. So they were track layers, um, spike drivers, and they each kind of had their own set of uh, tools and attendant practices. And they were overseen by these bosses, one of which James Ellis, you know, for instance. Um, and the bosses were in charge of paying them. Um, and so they were given kind of a, a sum to distribute to their to their men equally. And for this reason, they didn't really keep a roster. Um, it was they, they were judged kind of on how efficient or how quickly they could work. Um, there was one uh, there was one boss uh, who was actually uh, pretty up, uh, higher up in the Central Pacific. I believe it was Strobridge, um, and he there was there was a large strike of Chinese workers in I believe it was eighteen eighty. But there was a large strike of Chinese workers um, that lasted two weeks, and then finally they they got um, they got starved out. They had they picked up their tools. They began working again. They didn't win any concessions from from the Central Pacific, but there there began to loom a specter of kind of Chinese labor organization, um, which really rankled the Central Pacific bosses, um, and a lot of them also didn't. Uh, the work was incredibly hard, so a lot of them also slowed down sometimes, or or you know fell ill or injured. So this uh, one boss, Strobridge, uh, became notorious for carrying around a pick handle. Um, and he's recorded in all these sources as, uh, you know, motivating with pick handle these workers. Like he, would, he would go out and hit them. Um, mm-hmm. But it was, it was kind of like this, this idea that, um, 
the laborers were there to be corralled and managed and directed rather than you know almost engaged on as 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 human beings um and so one of the one of the factors that comes into that is that they were very often not counted or not uh, a, a you know a headcount or a roster was not really preserved. They were kind of left to their own devices to kind of ensure that everyone was there at the next stop at, you know while they were moving, um, and they only interfaced with the company through these gang bosses, um, mm-hmm. who were in charge of paying them and making sure that their own units were were performing well. Thank you uh, for that answer, Tom. I wonder if there were any enterprising workers who would, you know, get in line to get paid over and over again, you know, kind of take advantage of the system. Um, I think the idea is that they would like sell, they would argue amongst themselves uh, and and the gang boss, you know, then had, he had very minimal work because all he had to do was, was kind of dish out a certain sum. Yeah. Right on. Well, thank you, Tom. Um, Moving on, I want to talk about Ming Su and the scores he has to settle. Uh, Keeping a list of people one needs to get revenge upon is a storytelling device we've seen before. Uh, Just to bring a couple of recent comparisons from pop culture, uh, I will cite Arya Stark from A Song of Ice and Fire and Uma Thurman's character in uh, Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill films. There are many other examples, but how does this sort of hit list serve to move a story along? And what does the possession of such a list tell us about our protagonist? I, I mean, I love the, the trope of a hit list because it, it's it's such a motivating factor, um, and it immediately includes. As soon as you bring up, you know, a kind of a list of names, you immediately produce like this kind of ending, um, which is that all the names are crossed off. And the thing that's always interested me is is then what? Mm-hmm. Right? Um, it, it's almost like you know, you know you know that last scene of the Graduate where they're. Um, in the car and 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 the camera stays for a long time and you kind of see them look at each other and then they think you know like now what like now that the, that the activity is done the obligation is done um at least i think it's the graduate you should probably check that <laughs> um but this 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 concept of like you know you have you have this set of goals um and and the assumed production is is that when you're done with these goals you'll feel better or you'll be you'll finally be finished with what you have to do mm-hmm. um and the thing that happens instead it, it will, as as readers will find out is is quite is quite different from that um but the the list animates this whole process um it, it ends up being a set of obligations and i think that's one of the things that i want to see ming kind of struggle with is is squaring his own uh desires and wants and, and kind of where he where he wanted to be what he wanted to do with this kind of broader sense of having owing owing things to people you know even even violence owing certain people a certain set of behaviors or actions um and i think that uh, interaction between obligation and 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 you know other desires i think really pushes him to kind of complete these these tasks and and having that list is a very kind of shorthand way to to indicate that kind of that struggle um, the list is always there. He always has to return to it. And it's not like he like doesn't remember the names, you know, mm-hmm. like he, like if he, if he lost the notebook, he would still know the names, but there's something in the ritual of, of scratching each name out of going down the list of, of kind of completing, completing your obligations so that you can finally be freed. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Tom. Um, another of Ming Su's beliefs is that it is dangerous to go lurking in memory. 
Why does he believe this? I think what interested me about memory, specifically with Ming, is this idea that when you remember something, you're always kind of remaking it. Um, that a memory is never, it's, you're not loading up a tape. You're kind of um, walk, going through the motions of it. And so every time you remember something, um, you kind of, it's possible to alter it without your knowledge. And that in, you know, in recreating it, you, you change something about it. And if you visit the same memory many, many times, you may end up uh, molding it into something that it wasn't, into something nicer or, or you know, perhaps even crueler. And I think Ming's response to memory, especially painful memories, is that um, he doesn't want to revisit them. He doesn't want to recreate them, um, partly because he doesn't want to experience them again, but also partly because there he doesn't want to change them. That the things that you want to remain most true um, to life are the things that you do not remember, that you're instead only reminded of. Um, and I think this happens actually a lot with me uh, when I when I visit my parents' home. Um, and I kind of go to to my old my old room where I grew up. Um, that all of these kind of latent memories that have never been activated end up being the most intense because um, you know when when they're triggered by something almost almost like a Proustian kind of um, like lime flower tea, mm -hmm. um, where the, the the memory that is invoked is so potent and is and has never been touched until that moment that it comes across as the most intense and, and the most realistic and i think that is is what ming prizes about his memories of of his uh, his wife that's been kidnapped and he wants them to have that same power that same like potency and so he he doesn't want to go and revisit those memories because he's afraid of uh, attenuating them or weakening them or even modifying them without his knowledge yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Tom. Um, if I may, for a minute, uh, compare you to Cormac McCarthy. Uh, after, <laughs> after Cormac McCarthy wrote Sutri, uh, his prose became less Faulknerian and started becoming more sparse with a sort of uh, minimalist staccato rhythm. Uh, this is especially true of his books that were published after The Crossing, particularly No Country for Old Men in the Road. Uh, much of your writing lives within this same sense of rhythm and structure. And um, I was speaking with a coworker, and I wanted to highlight for our listeners that a lot of people compare any novel uh, with a Western setting to Cormac McCarthy. And that's not what I'm doing here. I'm talking about the actual rhythm uh, and structure of the sentences. Do you feel like this sort of rhythm or this sense of sparse but powerful description is necessarily married to this Western genre? Or do you feel that it helps bring out the dry, desperate nature of the setting? Yeah, I mean, I think, and, you know, obviously the, the, the McCarthy comparison is always uh, unbelievably flattering when it comes up. Um, but I think it's there's there's a kind of you know chick, it's almost chicken and egg uh, to whether the, the genre came first or or the style came first. I think my answer is is probably that there is something about the Western landscape that almost demands of you a certain kind of reverence or a certain kind of um, engagement. That it's it's hard to be uh, it's it's hard to be disrespectful of of that landscape. Um, in, in terms of language and style, um, because as soon as you treat it with anything less than, you know, almost religious reverence, it, it, it disintegrates. It feels like it could be anywhere. And I think part of um, so much of what's important about a Western is that space of, of kind of 
weird alien geologies where it seems anything could happen. Um, and so I think this this kind of rhythmic lyrical voice is um, is one way of kind of encoding that um, that feeling of awe. Uh, that you get from from being in those places and kind of putting that into the text and making bringing it closer to to the body and to the reader and, and having people really kind of feel that um, and I think one of the ways to do that is to is to use this kind of um, very tight uh, sweeping language that that tries to capture and then reproduce that feeling of the West. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Tom. And. I'm going to ask you one more question. Of course, we have barely touched upon your novel, which is good because I don't want to spoil it for anyone. Uh, but I do want to ask you about surrealism. Uh, you write about dreams a lot in this novel, and there are very surreal characters in this novel. Uh, Proteus, the shapeshifter, for example, uh, burnt, the burning woman, the hypnotist, the blind prophet, and on and on. Uh, can you talk about surrealism, specifically surrealism in the Western genre and how it serves your novel, The Thousand Crimes of Ming-Su? Yeah, absolutely. I think surrealism is... I mean, all of these different ways of of modifying realism, I think, always have as their goal. Um, we want readers to think more about what is real. When we, you know, when when we talk about magic, and we treat it as commonplace, as is the you know uh, the, the magical realist tradition. Um, and I, I I have been identifying uh, as as someone who put real magic into the book because uh, I think magical realism kind of has all these um, associations specifically with, with the kind of Latin American tradition of writing. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of want to distinguish between those, but I think the, the, the goal of, of playing with what's real or, or, you know, introducing the supernatural into any story is always at the end to draw attention back to the real. And I think um, this kind of mode, at least that I, that I like to use in, in the thousand crimes of Ming Su is when you talk about things that are magic and, and yet have it be unremarkable, almost like part of part of the world. Um, because in creating a world where there is real magic and and it, it's mundane, um, it, it, you end up thinking about, you know, what in in my world is is could be magic that that has become mundane to me um, through through familiarity. Like what is what is absolutely insane that I interact with on a daily basis that that I view as totally banal because I've seen it too many times. So I think part of part of that kind of thrust of, of surrealist, and especially like in the weird westerns as well, like of, of making the world a little stranger, uh, I think always come back to defamiliarizing our experience of the present, you know, our experience of, of, of the now and, and, and our lived experience, and kind of making us come back to it with fresh eyes, right? When you exit the surreal, you end up back in the real. But now it, it, it's almost, it's almost like a, like, like, you know, like, like, like die seeping over, like, like the real becomes a little bit stranger, a little bit odder. And, and perhaps you can find beauty or, or um, the remarkable in things that used to be uh, invisible to you. And I think that's, that was the idea. Um, at least that's, the, that was, that was the aim. And I think at the end of the day, also, you know, it's it's just cool to have uh, a shapeshifter and, and a woman who can't burn and, and a ventriloquist. I think um, part of it was also it, it's it's just very fun to write this kind of swashbuckling, you know, shoot 'em up western that also has people with actual powers in them. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Tom. And thank you for writing this wonderful novel. Congratulations on the stellar debut. I suspect our listeners have decided by now if this is the book for them. You know who you are, listeners, and you know that it is. I have been speaking with Tom Lin, author of The Thousand Crimes of Ming Su, which is published by our friends at Little Brown and Company. Tom, thank you so much for joining me. Jason, thank you so much for having me. Once again, I would like to thank Tom Lin for joining me. Copies of The Thousand Crimes of Ming Su can be ordered from www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping for members of Readers Club Plus. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Booking.